the stakes could not be higher where we have gubernatorial races that are running against folks who have already decided that Donald Trump has won the election in 2024 or are wanting to go back in time and relitigate the 2020 election results. As we look at state races and the importance of those on the future of the country and folks that kind of believe in an open and free democratic system and those that don't, it's going to be extremely important to protect those folks and the candidates who have stood up for voters and democracy. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Sarah Schreiber. Sarah is the executive director of America Votes, the important organization that is the coordination hub of the progressive community. America Votes works with over 400 local organizations to organize and mobilize voters. Sarah talked about the career that she built to take her to this key role and what America Votes is up to for 2022. She's someone you should know. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Sarah Schreiber at America Votes. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Sarah, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, my name is uh, Sarah Schreiber. I'm the executive director of America Votes, and I'm originally from New Mexico, and I grew up kind of exposed to politics my whole life. There is a history of public service in my family and activism as well, and so was exposed to public service and politics from a young age. And was always kind of involved, but one of my first jobs out of college was working for NARAL in New Mexico and helping to support the development efforts there. And I really got very interested in working with this issue organization and the community that you met through that. And that really kind of like spurred me to uh, have varying jobs across my career in both public service and issue organizing and campaigns. I've been with America Votes for about the last 12 years, which is a long time. And I've served in different capacities at America Votes. And that's a little bit about me. I, I really like it when someone stays for a long time at an organization, which is not in the fashion so much anymore. But I think it's so valuable to have somebody who's played different roles and learned it from the inside to run it, you really know something different when you're steeped in in an organization that way. And I I appreciate that when I have someone like that in my organization or when I talk to someone in another. It piqued my interest when you mentioned about your family that they have a, a history of interest in politics and public service. What specifically were you referring to there? My grandfather was in the House of Representatives in New Mexico and had a couple of runs for different offices in New Mexico. And then my mother was the first woman lieutenant governor in New Mexico and the chair of the party before that in 2000. So that was right in my kind of formative years in the 90s and early 2000s when all that was happening. And so I was involved with that through my family and watching and absorbing all of that as well. It's It seems invaluable to have that kind of experience, to have a parent or a grandparent or both who who participate at a high level in that way. It makes it seem doable 
And it puts as something that you can do where most people don't think about participating in politics in a kind of a professional way. How do you think that changed you seeing that in your mom, et cetera? Well, you know, I think I did get a lot of that up close exposure to what it means to go to a county party meeting and meet the folks who are doing this as part of a love for civic engagement and belief in a core set of values that they want to see advanced. And I was able to meet these folks at all these different events across the state, whether it was like a a fair or a county party meeting, as I said, and, and really see it and their enthusiasm for the efforts of the Democratic Party at that time in New Mexico, or as I grew up working with uh, issue-based organizations where you see folks' commitment and enthusiasm. And so I think that really showed me what was possible and that it can be fun and there can be a lot of joy in this work and that community is a part of political and issue advocacy work. And I've certainly found that to be true in my career and in the independent side. You know, you mentioned I've been at America Votes for a long time, and I think the community is a big part of that, both within our organization, but with the broader coalition. I remember I, I at like 19 or thereabouts, I went to the state convention in Colorado, state Democratic convention as a delegate uh, out of the precinct up through the various levels and just watching the show and watching how the politicians navigated and led and kind of corralled people it's an experience. It's so interesting. And it probably gave me a perspective I I wouldn't have had otherwise. I noticed that you went to the University of New Mexico. I did. What did you study there? And was that a valuable experience? Um, I love the University of New Mexico. I'm a very proud alumnus of the, of the university. I studied communications and women's studies. I also took a fair number of political science um, classes, but I decided ultimately to focus on communications and, and women's studies. I am from Colorado Congressional District 2. I grew up in Boulder. I noticed you worked oh, for okay. Joan Fitzgerald uh, for a bit. Isn't that right about that part of the world? Oh, yeah, that's that district. Yeah, CD2. Absolutely. Tell me about that campaign and your involvement. Yeah, so I started actually working for Joan when she was the majority leader in the Senate. State Senate. Yep. In the state Senate. Yes. And I, so I worked with her and I worked for a state Senator that had been newly elected in that 06 cycle, uh, Gail Schwartz, who also represented a Western rural district. So I had some experience working, working with Joan in that session. And then when they were putting the team together, uh, her chief of staff, Mary Alice Mandrich asked if I wanted to come work on the campaign for the primary. It was a tough, uh, ultimate loss for us, but it was a really good experience for me. And at the time, I mean, numbers have soared so much as far as what candidates are raising, but at the time we were raising unprecedented amount of money to get Joan introduced to the voters and get our message out. And that was a really fun thing to be a part of. And I uh, maintained a really good relationship with Joan and continued to work with her. Actually, when I first started at America Votes, Uh, we worked together at America Votes. So that was, you know, a rough and tumble kind of primary, for sure. Joan is a really tough woman. And I think that in that primary, she was able to work really hard, connected with a lot of voters. Um, it is it is tough to run against a, a self-funder, for sure. That was Jared back then, right? That's correct. Yeah. That's right. It's the current governor yeah. of Colorado, yeah, Jared Polis. Yeah. Correct. That, yes. Okay. Um, what was next for you after that? So kind of immediately after that, I had some short-term work on a ballot initiative, no shortage of those in Colorado, as you know. Um, And so I worked on a ballot initiative right after that. And then I came here to Washington, D.C. to work uh, for a representative from New Mexico, from a different CD2, Southern New Mexico. I worked for a representative named Harry Teague, who won that seat in 08. And represented basically the bottom two thirds of the state. So another big rural district and a battleground district, it has remained and even more so this year, as you know. How did you originally connect to American Votes as a employee? So it's funny, I had some exposure to America Votes when I was talking about working in Colorado. Before I worked for Joan, I worked for a local organization that was working to expand funding for 
schools in Colorado, and it still exists. It's called Great Education Colorado, and it's a parent-organized organization that, as you may know, Colorado has a lot of funky funding rules, and there is a real need for advocating for funding for schools there, as there is everywhere else. During that cycle, I went to go work for an organization that was also doing independent work on the gubernatorial campaign called Communities for Quality Education, and it was it was a 527 effort. I sat at the America Votes table, which had just started in Colorado in 2006. So I had some exposure to what that table atmosphere was like and how folks could share information and work together towards common goals. And then while I was working on the Hill is when Joan became president of America Votes nationally and their executive director, Greg Speed, uh, had also was also working for America Votes, at the, was executive director of America Votes at the time. And I had worked for him in a previous cycle on the, some of those campaigns in Colorado. So they both knew me. Joan was coming in as a new leader. And they came and talked to me about being a development director for America Votes while I was working on the Hill. And it seemed like at the time that that would be a good way for me to stay engaged in politics, but have a, a longer term job. I was going to be able to work with two folks who I'd worked with before and enjoyed working with. I had Greg on the show a couple of years ago, so I've chatted with him a bit. What is the difference between the president and the executive director in the America Votes world? In the America Votes world, I would say, you know, Greg is doing a lot of the work with the board, with kind of the vision setting when we're doing strategic planning and working with the board and stakeholders on that a lot of the fundraising, whereas I'm working directly with the senior leadership team, managing those folks and doing a lot of the day-to-day work of running an organization. Yeah. Sort of CEO, COO. A little bit. Yeah. 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 Um, Although we have grown and we have, we have hired a COO in the past uh, six months. And so we're excited to be able to, to be expanding. How big is America Votes National these days? At the national level, we only, we have about 20 folks, give or take. And across the organization, we have uh, close to 80. And that'll grow. Tell me about the path within the organization that you've taken. So you start out in development. What did you learn there? And what did you learn in the subsequent roles as you moved up? It was a steep learning curve when I joined America Votes. I had come over from the hard side, which is a totally different kind of fundraising. And I learned a lot about kind of talking to donors about the value of an independent infrastructure that's focused on voter turnout and what our coalition looks like. And that takes time. And it is different from a hard side campaign. And so I began to learn a lot about that. And then just really getting steeped in the organization as development director, you get the chance to meet the amazing staff across our states and get an understanding of the programs that partners are running and what the plans look like. And that was really invaluable as an education springboard for me at America Votes. If you were explaining to a potential donor what the mission is of America Votes and why that kind of infrastructure is important? What sort of things do you find to be persuasive? How do you sell that? We, as you know, kind of talk about ourselves as the coordination hub of the progressive community. And I think when we're talking with folks and anybody who we want to talk to about what America Votes is doing, it is impactful that we work with over 400 state and national partners both at the state level, but then also at the national level, and that that coalition represents a really diverse group of organizations that may be connecting with different constituencies, but where they can come together around common goals, we help them get the most out of their electoral, whether it's issue or candidate-focused campaigns that are on the IE side. And with that comes an unprecedented and or I guess an unparalleled as well kind of wealth of data and program information about what's happening in the states. And I think in particular, as the independent sides work and, and our, our group's programs have grown, to have donors be able to engage with America Votes, who has kind of a, a view across states, 
and can really lift up those programs based on what donors may be interested in, I think it is really impactful as we talk to folks, whether it's partners that we're working with or potential funders or things like that. I was talking to someone the other day who was trying to sort out what is valuable that you can contribute to in progressive politics. From your perspective, where ought a donor give money in your world and in civic engagement, et cetera? What is being done under your umbrella or outside of it that you think matters? You know, I think there is so much remarkable work going on within our coalition, and there are so, so many amazing programs happening at all levels of the independent campaign infrastructure, whether that's ad testing and media or, uh, you know, things that are happening around the digital world. What I can speak to and what I think America Votes really tries to lift up, and particularly when there are so many ways to contribute out there and so many things that folks can focus on and the variables are changing so fast. I think one thing that we really try to do at America Votes is focus on our lane and what impact our lane can have. And we work with our partners year round on robust plans that kind of identify what a path to victory can look like in the state. And the program recommendations and the programs that we run towards those plans are directly focused on field and direct voter contact. There is a real value in meeting voters where they are, particularly voters who might be hard to reach through other mediums or if media is saturated, which is so important, and we do need to be saturating the airwaves at every turn. But I think we have on the IE side the ability to run these robust direct voter contact campaigns, primarily through door-to-door contact that give us an advantage that we may not always see on the other side. You use the term path to victory, which is kind of a term of art in politics. What does that mean exactly? That is taking a look at the landscape as it exists and kind of identifying how you get to a win number and looking across different historical performance of groups, what's possible in the landscape, if there are groups that are coming online that may be able to engage constituencies that have not been engaged in the past, and kind of taking all of that together and determining what a win number could look like and kind of where we need performance to be across various regions, demographics, all those types of things to get to where we want to go. And our state directors and our national data team, I would say, are some of the most talented individuals at taking a look at what that landscape looks like and laying out what that path to victory needs to to look like. And I think part of that is the unique offering of America Votes, where we have folks who have been in these states for multiple, many years in different capacities, and maybe as the America Votes director, and have been able to see the progression over time of the electorate and also have, you know, a unique understanding of what the groups on the ground are doing and and what those programs look like. So I get the sense that as a team, we sort of are pushing really hard to get to that path to victory, to that win number. And that's like a goal that we've set. What I sometimes hear in the reporting after the election is, you know, We got to where we wanted to be, but the other side surprised us and the turnout in the white working class or whatever conservative rural areas or something was way higher than expected. And we made our win number, but we lost. How do you think about like getting that number right? Like who does that? What's the mechanics of that? And how do we make sure that it's set to a number that's reachable, but it actually results in democratic victories? Yeah, well, I think that's a definitely a fair question. And as far as variables kind of coming to pass, I think one really important part is taking that analysis after the election. And, you know, we're producing robust voter analysis across all of our states to kind of see what the lessons learned from the last election are. 
and building that into the path to victory kind of moving forward. And then, you know, Nathaniel, I think one of the big things here is not defining that path to victory and making it a stagnant number. You know, I think especially in the past couple of cycles, something that we've done is really trying to write scenario planning for high, medium, and low turnout. If you would have asked me in 2016 if we would be looking at a 2022 midterm where we're on track to break every record for voter turnout on both sides in recent history, I don't know that I would have said that was true, you know? And I think taking stock of what the the variables are and making it a number that can have multiple scenarios and planning for those different scenarios. And then as you're getting closer to the election, refining it is a huge part of that. So you're continually looking at indicators of turnout and uh, and changing that path to victory or that win number. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And I think, and what the what the overall turnout numbers might be, you know, I mean, that's definitely when you talk about an art and not a science, I feel like that's something people are continually taking in and our folks are continually taking in results from primary elections or what the new voter laws are saying and things like that. And just trying to make sure that we're taking in all those variables to see what turnout is going to look like and planning accordingly. And I think we're at the point in the cycle where we're comfortable in saying that it's going to be high turnout across the country. Which is something unusual in a certain respect about a midterm, but probably speaks to the incredible polarization and passion that both sides are feeling. One side feeling like they were cheated out of the presidential election to a large extent. And the other side, I don't know, how would you characterize us worried that that the bad guys are going to come back into power? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think you see a lot of reality setting in on what another two years of a Trump Senate or House could look like with many of the voters that we are communicating with. I also think, you know, we have some great candidates that the Democrats have recruited across the country that have really stood out against some of the folks that that the other side is nominating through these processes. So when you look at 2022 kind of globally, what are you thinking? How does it look? What are you, what are you hearing through your 400 some organizations? What are your predictions and what are you working to? There's no doubt that this cycle is full of unprecedented variables. And I feel like anybody who tells you they know what's going to happen or what's going on should probably give caveats to that. When we think about our community, there's been unprecedented progress as far as organizations growing their programs and being able to communicate with more voters than ever before from a direct voter contact in particular lens. When we look at it from our lens, our partners know that this election is bigger than just one election and that the implications in of the election in 22 in 24 are going to be great great. And so I think that the stakes are are very clear especially when it comes to some of these state offices as well as obviously congressional control and that this is a year that's going to be all about turnout. That is where midterms are won and lost. And in typically we have seen in past midterms preceding 2018 in particular, it's like how low can you go? And this year, as I've said before, I think we're thinking about it is going to be how high is up and figuring out how to run a program that that meets that. Our folks are definitely thinking big and starting kind of these direct voter contact programs earlier than ever before and beginning to build the field apparatus that is needed to connect with as many voters as possible And then also thinking about what we started in 20 around this spread out the vote strategy that was obviously very pandemic driven in 20, but has, I think, a lot of takeaways for 22 that can be really useful. And when we think about more people voting than ever before, the need to spread that vote out. And so what I mean by that is engage folks in vote by mail, engage folks in early vote, and really think about the election day as the last day to vote. 
to be able to kind of get those folks who have decided to take the action and vote earlier on in the process out of the universe. So then you can continue contacting more and more people all the way until that last day to vote on election day. And so I think with that kind of strategy in mind and with our partners executing that already kind of at a pretty larger scale than 2018, America Votes feels like it's really important to stay with that lane, continue to drive that strategy so that we can engage and empower the most voters possible, particularly those who are oftentimes disenfranchised, whether it's young voters or voters of color, and connecting with those folks throughout the cycle around their plan to vote and just engaging and empowering folks, hearing what's on their mind and talking to them about voting and all of those pieces that are going to be so critical this year. What you're talking about, if I hear you right, is it's a mobilization effort. It's identify who the people are that would vote for us and get them to vote. Does that include persuasion at all? To what extent do you think that there is a persuadable subset of the electorate and how does that fit into your planning and thinking and targeting? So I think it's worth kind of noting here when we think about some of the voters that we're talking about and that our coalition is particularly focused on this year is what we would call kind of like the blue surge voters who opted out in 16, but maybe voted in 18 or 20, or were new voters in 18 or 20. And there's about 25 million of those folks across the country. And that's kind of an unprecedented well of newly engaged voters for us to to be talking to. So I do think that that's a huge part to stay focused. And I think you do, you have to talk to people about what's happening in their communities and what the different solutions are being offered on both sides as a persuasion conversation and making clear once we've had a chance to engage these folks at the door, some of the things that have been delivered by folks that are elected and what the plans on the other side are. And I think that that's a persuasion conversation. And much of that is obviously done on the airwaves as well. And it is a very important part of our campaign. But a lot of the communication that I think can be meaningful and can be done is around process and the importance of voting and connecting with some of those particularly newly engaged voters around the power of their vote and even giving them information about how to engage in the process. While there is so much misinformation and disinformation about voting floating out around there, uh, a kind of a third party validator coming in and helping people through that process and letting them know what the rules may have changed or not to, you know, maybe augment some of the stuff that the Secretary of State is doing, or if in the state there's not a lot of communication from those entities, I think we definitely see that as a part of the conversation that is sometimes talked to about persuade to vote conversation, which I think is is also important. And the other point that I would make there is I think, you know, voters understand the stakes that are in front of them. And we have some amazing organizations that can really talk from an issue basis that we have seen folks move the needle on. When you talk about some of these issues that folks care about, I think the most recent Dobbs decision is a good example of that and kind of where different candidates or electeds lie on that. But also just talking about, you know, the importance of that issue from someone like Planned Parenthood or a local organization that is focused on reproductive rights, that that's a really meaningful and I think persuasive conversation for some of these voters to hear about the issues from a non-party leader or a non-elected leader and talking about the stakes that are involved in these issues as the elections come up. From one election to another, there's always subsets of the electorate that are moving, right? There, one group moves to the left, one moves to the right, and that can happen in different geogra- differently in different geographies. What's What are you seeing in terms of who's moving the right way and who's moving the wrong way at this point? Because you can get yourself in a position, as you know, of pers- of trying to get people out to vote who actually have turned against you. 
both sides can have that problem. Yeah, absolutely. In thinking about that question, something that's coming to mind for me is more around, you know, these groups of voters that may be kind of counted out or characterized in the media, like young voters, uh, about doing, not participating. And I think, you know, where we've seen interesting, you know, I think if you think about post-2018 and the youth vote kind of showing up in droves, and that was the first post-16 election, but also there had uh, been the movement around gun violence prevention that was youth-led and had a lot of efforts to to get folks engaged and turning out around that. Thinking about some of these groups that can surge if they are connected with and are, are motivated, we've seen that with young voters. And I think trying to make sure that we're connecting with them and working with our partners like NextGen, the Alliance for Youth Action, and then the Alliance for Youth Action's in-state groups that are really running an amazing, robust program to connect with youth voters. I'm sure we've seen the same polls where, you know, it looks like college-educated white voters are continuing to move toward uh, the Democrats and working-class folks, and including working-class folks from communities of color, may not be uh, moving as much in the same direction right now, or we or Democrats might be losing ground. But I, again, would just really say that I think there is a danger in characterizing some of these polls in that way, that anybody who is more affected by inflation is going to be not really interested in pledging their allegiance to any party right now. But when we are meeting them where they are at their doors with culturally competent program that is run in the communities, by the communities, I think you can have really impactful conversations about what is possible if we are able to maintain or expand pro-choice, pro-climate, pro-voting majorities in the Senate and House. One critic I talked to recently about how we spend money getting out the vote said that he thinks the evidence is that telling people to vote because of the power of their vote doesn't help. In fact, may even backfire because people understand that one vote rarely ever makes a difference in an election. And that same person suggested that young voters are repeatedly talked about on our side as this well of potential turnout, but they never actually do in the end. What's your response to those two criticisms or suggestions? Always my response to uh, those kind of criticisms is first kind of like, I would love to know more. And it's absolutely worth taking a look at. And we're all benefited by learning from the latest research and having those conversations. But I do think that whether it's characterized as the power of their vote or what's at stake, in the election, I do think that we have seen impactful gains from robust field programs where folks are talking to voters at the door about how to vote, when to vote, where to vote, what's at stake from the issues that might be affecting their community. And I just think that there is uh, no downside to connecting with folks and continuing to talk to them about being civically engaged. We're seeing unprecedented turnout right now, but the number of people that could be participating in elections could be much greater. We feel like there is enormous value in the direct voter contact and that airwaves do become saturated and there is a limit on that um, as far as harder to reach voters and interrupting that and getting to the door with a face-to-face conversation has power. Um, But we're always interested in studying our programs and running experiments to the extent that they don't affect program and learning. And I think we have learned over cycles on how to do this better. And obviously America Votes works to coordinate all of our partners so we're not all on top of each other when the big Canvas programs are running and coordinating turf so we're getting the most impact out of these conversations. And then on the the youth vote, I mean, I that one's just such a hard one for me to really 
except because I just don't think the investment has been made in communicating or connecting with young voters to say whether or not they never show up. And I don't think that the data supports that from particularly in 2018. I think we did see a big surge and we're getting ready to go into election that is going to be one on the margins in a lot of states. And I think that all of the kind of turnout that you can do with all the different groups is going to be really, really important in putting it over the edge and direct voter contact. uh, It can move the needle. And I think particularly in close elections, it's really important and a unique advantage. Do you think you have enough resources to do everything you want to do? I think that we can always raise more. We can always put more funds to use. I could tell you that we have gaps that we are raising toward in all of our states to make sure that our partners programs are fully funded. So I think that is no, I don't. (laughs) Uh, Do you have a strategy to fill that, that deficit or is it just like taken for granted? It's not going to happen. I don't know what the mix of where you get your money is, but I've heard, you know, maybe a little bit less of, of late, but donor fatigue on our side and people feeling like we're doomed on this midterm and why throw good money after bad and sort of like depressing thoughts about, about funding. What's the reality as you see it? Well, you know, as we talked about before, I'm not raising the funds day to day as much um, anymore. And so, you know, I think what I would answer to that is to say that at this time in 2018, our coalition had knocked about one and a half million doors, made one and a half million attempts across our states. And we're at about three million now at the same point in time. There is robust program running in states, and I think that institutional and individual donors alike understand the stakes um, of this election and have invested in programs that are helping them engage and empower as many voters as possible. And we can expand that work and plan to expand that work, and we're going to have to raise the funds to do it. And we want to work with our longstanding funders to do that and folks that are looking to make a difference in this next election cycle by engaging as many people as possible. So that's my take on that. Do you track what the other side is doing in analogous work? Do you have a sense of, are they out there mobilizing people in similar ways? Are they out spending us? Do they have more capacity or less capacity in the game that you're in? What's your sense of the balance of efforts in your world? I mean, we certainly heard in 20 that there was more door-to-door contact with... Because uh, we stayed out because of COVID mainly, right? Well, so what I would say is we were hearing that. But in 2020, our coalition ended up knocking about 24 million doors, a significant amount of that in Georgia in the runoff. So the activity really did spur up when it was safe to do so in the later part of the cycle. But, you know, we definitely heard rumblings about Trump folks being out in 2020. I think that there are in-state efforts, you know, around kind of like organizing around a school board meeting and things like that, that we hear more of than the canvas piece. And I think, you know, the the infrastructure that we have on our side to conduct these face-to-face conversations and direct voter contact and engage voters is not replicated on the other side, to my knowledge. Who tracks that on our side? Who, like, who is, who studies that? I mean, almost universally, when I ask people about what is the other side doing, it's, it's not systematic, our knowledge. It's sort of like we hear rumblings. We know that they have a lot of money in this or whatever. Is there somebody on our side who who really investigates that or even academically? What I would say to that, Nathaniel, is that, you know, I think American Bridge does a lot of work to track what's happening on the other side. 
um, particularly as it pertains to to media and those pieces. Yeah, but they're not studying the other side's turnout type operation or doing or the whoever is doing. I mean, a lot of that comes out of the churches and out of, you know, their interest groups. And I don't know that we know. I wish I had more for you on that. Um, but I don't I don't know that I'm the right person. Right. What else would you like people to know about what you're up to at America Votes? What is your day to day? I mean, it must be a pretty exciting place to sit as the executive director of such a key organization with the lens into this these this big election coming up. Tell me about what what else you know that other people don't. One of my favorite parts of working at America Votes is the staff and the team that we've been able to build. We have just a really, really dedicated, smart, incredible staff at the national level and the folks leading our state teams. And that's a real joy to be able to interact with them and get their take on what's happening in states and particularly from the executive director vantage point to get a piece of information from all these different states and be able to kind of track an inside view of these states that are discussed in the media and um, in conversation all the time and have that um, ability to to engage with our staff on that and and watch these folks lead. And the other part that I would say about that is getting a window into what the groups are doing and some of these programs that are being run. You've seen our website, I'm sure, and we have you know a lot of national organizations and some that people might know by household names like Planned Parenthood or LCV or the NAACP and organizations like that that are doing really remarkable work across states. But then we have state groups that have grown tremendously, tremendously in the last four or five years. When you think about groups like APIPA, who I know Mohan was a guest on your show, and what they've been able to build in the realm of AAPI voter engagement and Truly, voter engagement around AAPI groups has grown so much uh, in many of our states in the past four or five years, whether you look at the Asian American Advocacy Network in Georgia or One API in Nevada and some of these groups that are really doing really remarkable work. And so getting a window into those state-led groups has been also just a real joy and learning what those folks are doing. Um, and longstanding groups, like groups like a. Philip Randolph Institute in North Carolina, who are running robust programs in their state to connect with voters. So that is a real joy for me to be able to learn about these groups and meet their uh, staff and leaders within, you know, various convenings or uh, conversations. Do you ever get the intelligence, I assume you do, that like a key state is underperforming and and you have to like reallocate resources there or change leadership there or like how much are you involved your organization involved in like recalibrating and fixing things when they're not going as well somewhere identifying that and making something happen different does that happen yeah i mean i think a good example of that is looking at 20 where we recalibrate was the name of the game as we looked at getting back to the doors and direct voter contact. Um, and, you know, we might look at a state like Pennsylvania, where we have a lot of folks sitting around the table, but one of our national partners who has operations in that state wasn't engaged in the state table and would be able to bring some capacity to that overall in-state plan. And so kind of looking at that saying, we know that this group is doing X, Y, and Z nationally, but they may not be doing it in Pennsylvania. And we want to help make that connection and get our state folks talking to them and see if this is a match. That has happened in the past and it kind of grows out the coalition in state and they might just not be connected for one reason or another. Things like that, I think are important. One thing that I would say on that too from a really macro level, our state directors and state staff kind of taking a look at what groups are on the ground more in the off year than in right in cycle and saying, you know, why doesn't Ohio have a candidate recruitment organization? We should lead the effort on, you know, helping to build something like that out and then trying to connect 
with folks and build out those, you know, our, our state directors take a lot of leadership in building out along with other partners in the state in building that out and building out kind of what different components could be that will help strengthen the coalition, like candidate recruitment or a communications hub or things like that. Is there a state that you most worry about currently? I think it's a tough year to pick one state or as variables just seems like they change so much um, or have changed so much recently. Um, But, you know, I think that the stakes could not be higher in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, where we have gubernatorial races that are running against folks who have already decided that Donald Trump has won the election in 2024 or are wanting to go back in time and relitigate the 2020 election results. And so I think as we look at state races and the importance of those on the future of the country and folks that kind of believe in an open and free democratic system and those that don't, it's going to be extremely important to protect those folks and the candidates who have stood up for voters and democracy. So I would say that I think those three states are are extremely important. But this is a year when, like I said, we need to be consistently looking at the variables and what is changing and not taking anything for granted, obviously. Are you personally optimistic or pessimistic about the next two national elections? I am an optimistic person by nature, Nathaniel. So I have to answer that I am optimistic and you know, I feel like hope isn't always the hottest commodity in this town, meaning Washington, D.C. But if I wasn't kind of optimistic about what I've been able to see the power of this coalition, even in just the short time that I've been executive director since the 18th cycle, do, and some of the wins that we've seen in 20 and our coalition's role in that um, on running robust field campaigns on the ground, then I would have to reconsider what I'm doing every day if I wasn't optimistic when I see what these partners are able to do and have done. I really believe in the power of our coalition and in our lane of being able to connect with a very specific subset of voters. We have uh, really great partners that are able to connect with these folks who are harder to reach or may have been disenfranchised in the past um, or are being disenfranchised. So that definitely gives me a lot of hope and optimism for for what the future holds. You're sitting in a, a leadership position. What have you learned that you would convey to, say, a new executive director of a different national political organization if they were going to ask your advice? What makes a good ED? What What have you learned so far that you could share? Well, that's a great question. And I don't know if I I can necessarily say what makes a great ED, but I think some of the lessons that I've learned are listening. And when you first start the job, listening and understanding kind of the programs and the culture of the organization is very important. And asking questions. um, And then I think as you grow into your, to your leadership and you kind of, are aligning on a vision, um, building a team around you that is ready to execute that vision and the importance of a diverse and reflective team in organizations, I don't think can be overstated and being really intentional about the work of the organization as it builds reflective teams and is focusing on equity and anti-racism, I think has been hugely important in my tenure as executive director in kind of changing the organization and doing that for the better and having a more engaged, robust staff, it's been important. And then I think finding those colleagues outside of the organization that are in the same position as you and creating relationships and talking to them and understanding what they're going through and building community that is going to help you. Obviously, folks are going to have their friends and their family, but I think investing in those colleague relationships is really, really important too to get you through some of those hard times because there's not always a place for you to to go work through those issues. Whereas when you aren't executive director, there might be. Yeah. Peers are are different than than any other category, I think, of people to go to. 
I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you like your sense of the technology that your group's programs run off of. What are they generally using and is are they well served or do you think that there needs to be a lot of improvement in the tech for getting out the vote and beyond currently? I do think that there's room for improvement. I always think there's room for improvement. I think that our community has built something unprecedented when we look at Van and the ability for thousands and thousands and thousands of people to be trained on one platform that may transfer from campaign or organization to organization and holds a lot of the direct voter contact as far as a Canvas kind of tracking system and ability for people to connect with folks at the door and use the technology to be able to do that. I think we've grown strides and we have a lot of people that are are executing on that. I think that's been enormous benefit to our community and the work that we've done. In 20 in particular, we saw really great strides with calling and texting and what that those tools can look like. And also what vote by mail application tracking systems and how those integrate with public websites and things like that to make the experience of the voter as easy as possible. But, you know, right now, all of those things are existing kind of separately. And I think that we could continue to provide some holistic tools that are making the experience of the organizer even easier. Yeah, I think I would leave it at that. Is there a question that I should have asked you that I haven't? I think you've asked pretty much all the questions that I I would like for you to ask. I really am appreciative of you inviting me on the show. But I don't think I have another real burning question. Well, it's been great to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? Thank you for the time. And, you know, I appreciate being able to tell the story of America Votes a little bit and where we are this cycle and appreciate you reaching out. Glad that you took the time. That was Sarah Schreiber. Sarah is at americavotes.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.